2: at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast.
0: This Sound Opinions podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Support this free service by donating at any amount, 5, 10 or $100 at soundopinions.org. What do you love about music?
3: To begin with, <laughs> everything. <laughs> Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DiRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Katz. I write about
1: rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, we've got author Joe Nick Patoski, and he's going to take us through the life and career of American icon Willie Nelson.
3: And later on, Greg and I will review the new album from another musical legend, Bob Dylan. Support for Sound Opinions is provided by founding sponsor Alltech Lansing and their new Octave Air speaker system, a wireless 80 watt wall of sound for your iPod. More information at alltechlansing.com. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news.
1: Yes, indeed. Rock and roll radio. This week's major news spins off a huge payola probe that we have reported on in Sound Opinions over the past few years. The uh, then Attorney General in New York, Elliot Spitzer, found that the long-standing practice of pay-for-play, uh, major corporations uh, going to radio, funneling money to them in order to get the best most well-financed artists on their labels played on their airwaves has continued. No shock there, but Spitzer imposed a series of fines. It was followed up by the Federal Communications Commission basically issuing consent decrees to the four largest radio station group owners in America, Clear Channel, CBS Radio, Citadel, and Intercom, fining them $12.5 million dollars and getting them to agree to play forty two hundred hours of local regional and unsigned artists on their airwaves so a major step in the direction of getting independent music played on commercial radio
3: well well corporate radio followed through right and and it's now uh, resembles public radio as this this wonderland of great underground local regional independent music right word only so jim (laughs) Uh, Unfortunately, the news
1: this week is a major study by the Future of Music Coalition, a nonprofit research and advocacy group based in Washington, D.C., that has concluded that that 2007 agreement has been basically tossed out the window Shocking. by major radio corporations. What the study found is that the major label songs still constitute about 80% of airplay on commercial radio stations, so that even though... Independent music has had a huge renaissance in this country. More than 30% of the music that is made and sold in America is independent music. Over half of the winners at the recent Grammy Awards were from independent labels. Still, less than 20% of those artists are represented on commercial radio stations.
3: Well, this is bad news for everybody but uh, public radio and sound opinions. Greg, that is Coldplay, one of the big summer tours, crossing arenas from coast to coast uh, this summer concert season. But Coldplay is not just taking its fans' money and giving them a show. They're giving them something a little extra a live cd anybody who buys a coldplay ticket will leave the venue with a live cd to be entitled left right left right left and what's more fans at home who who couldn't buy a ticket can download the album for free from coldplay's website this is a neat idea and we're starting to see more and more of it prince did this a few years ago with an album where everybody who bought a concert ticket got his album at the time, which shot up the charts as a result. Billboard actually accused Prince of rigging the, their chart system. No Doubt, closer to today, is doing it this summer on their big reunion tour. That's a real bargain. You go to the No Doubt show, you get free downloads of their entire catalog. Now, Coldplay and No Doubt are doing this for fans with a pretty reasonable ticket price to start with. The Coldplay tickets, I think, are $35 to $100. The No Doubt tickets are 20 to $80. I know, 80 and and $100 doesn't exactly sound reasonable in a sane world. <laughs> However, as I was preparing the summer concert preview for the newspaper, it struck me how many tickets are averaging around $200 for decent seats this summer in these difficult economic times. You two, they got some $30 seats for their big stadium tour in September, but the best seats in the house are $250. I mean... A $500 evening, plus Ticketmaster service fees, plus parking if you want to see Bono and help him save the world. And he ain't giving you no free CD. (laughs) We've been saying again and again as we cover the changing music industry on Sound Opinions that that the sale of recorded product is becoming less and less important for artists because now as – Throughout history, they make the bulk of their income performing live, and we're starting to see when when you're seeing bands as big as Coldplay give fans music for free. That's kind of underscoring that point. Right, exactly. I mean, this is a
1: an indication that the money is in the touring. Uh, why not sell your CD or bundle your CD in with the ticket to the places where where fans are actually going? Maybe they're staying away from the retail stores to buy CDs, but they're still coming to the shows. This is a great way to get new music to your fans. <laughs>
3: Oh boy, Britney Spears and Toxic. Why are we subjecting you, the listener, to Britney? Well, she just toured America and was sponsored by Virgin Mobile. There's a new story in Billboard saying that music sponsorships will hit a record high in live concerts in 2009. North American companies are spending more than a billion dollars. Dollars to sponsor music venues, festivals, and tours this year—a 3.8 percent increase from what they spent last year. Again, in these troubled economic times, (laughs) you know you have J.C. Penney doing a two-year deal with Rascal Flats. You have Clorox, Clorox bleach, right? Uh, Doing a deal with Keith urban and you have uh britney there getting into bed with virgin mobile now you and i just saw britney's tour last week right it was one of the last dates do you think virgin mobile got their money's worth (laughs) out of having their names slapped all over that stage i don't think britney even knew where she was i mean you and i both saw
1: this this show and uh it was interesting to me how little she actually wanted to be there There was not a smile on her face. No. There was not a single live vocal throughout the entire show. Most of her fans acknowledge the fact Britney can't sing. She lip syncs throughout the whole show. But you talk about somebody going through the motions, she was going through the motions. I I mean, that was phoning it in big time. So maybe it does tie in with the
3: cell phone Phoning it in. All right. That makes sense. Well, you know, a big part of this money for the sponsorships is going to the big festivals. Uh, A lot of the cash going to your Coachellas, your Lollapaloozas here in Chicago, festivals like that. There's another festival that started it all. Exactly. I mean, think about uh, Woodstock, if you will, for just a second,
1: okay? We won't drag you through the mud too long here. But in 1969, okay, the original rock festival in a lot of ways, I mean, Monterey, obviously, in 67, Woodstock was the one where it sort of blew up into this, hey, we can make money off this. 400,000 kids in a field for three days? There's money to be made. In 1994, Woodstock came back, a major corporate sponsorship in 99. It came back yet again, even more corporate sponsors, infamous ending there with uh, flames ending the festival because people were upset with the amount of money they were being forced to pay for bottled water, for example, out in the middle of a field, out in the middle of nowhere. Now Woodstock is going to make yet one final attempt, it appears, to re-energize the spirit of 69 on the 40th anniversary of the original concert at the original site of the concert in upstate New York uh, they are reuniting a lot of the groups that played at the original festival Paul Kantner uh, with Jefferson Starship, Country Joe McDonald, one of the original performers, LaVon Helm, who performed at the original festival with the band, Uh, will be joined by 10 years after Big Brother and the Holding Company, one big minus there, no Janis Joplin. Um, Yes, light. Canned Heat Mountain. So, you know, one last throwback to the classic hippie festival of 69. It'll be interesting to see how many corporate sponsors they need to uh, To employ to pull
3: this one off. Well, I know you're packing your sleeping bag and you're road tripping, ain't you? (laughs) I don't think so. One, two, one, two, three,
2: four. On the road again. Just can't wait to get on the road again. The life I love is making music with my friends. And I can't wait to get on the road again. On the road again places that I've never been Seeing things that I may never see again. I can't wait to get on the road again
3: You're listening to Sound Opinions, and that song, of course, is On the Road Again. Probably the single most famous tune by the great Willie Nelson. If you think you're not interested in Willie Nelson, let me set you straight. Alright? I'm not a huge fan of mainstream country. I think though willie nelson transcends all genres joe nick petosky a great author who has just written the definitive account of willie nelson willie nelson an epic life makes the case that nelson is the prototypical, quintessential Texas musician, American icon, and outlaw. The way that he mixed country with rock and jazz and folk music and basically every strain of American music has really been unmatched in the last half century. And his life itself parallels the birth and development of recorded music as well as the history of Texas since the Great Depression. Yes, indeed, Jim. Uh, Willie Nelson, a great
1: Texan, and it's time to welcome another great Texan the author of Willie Nelson and Epic Life, Joe Nick Potosky, Joe Nick, welcome to the show.
4: Hey, thank you all for having me. So Joe Nick,
1: let's begin with how you approach this book in the first place. Uh, there have been about, what, 2,000 Willie Nelson biographies written in the last uh, few decades. Willie himself wrote an autobiography. What new could you bring to the table?
4: Well, I think I'd known him as a writer to an artist over this period of time and really got to see it blow up in Austin in the early 70s, and this whole thing called Texas music. That term didn't exist back then. And really seeing it grow into this one-name icon that transcends Texas, that transcends America. So I thought I had at least that familiarity to go from. But once I had that in hand, it was really learning about how he got to that point, particularly the 50s and 60s, when he's growing up and trying to make it uh, as a songwriter and as a musician. And then going back to not only his early days in Abbott, Texas, growing up uh, poor in a rural farming community, but doing family genealogy and going back to Arkansas, where his people came from. Mm. I just wanted to go deep. And I I really do think he's the quintessential Texan, not just the great Texas music icon, but uh, especially after uh, some of the politicians we've had in the public eye, I wanted to write about someone that really represented what I consider to be Texas values.
3: I, I want to uh, quote something that, that you wrote, Joe Nick, about that. For those of us uh, not lucky enough to, to have spent a lot of time in Texas, because Texas is a way of life. You wrote, Texans by nature are independent, free thinkers, open, outgoing, and friendly iconoclasts they respect tradition but are not beholden to it whether it's god or sin they tend to embrace excess that's what you're talking about when you talk about texas and willie nelson
4: exactly and i mean this you know we we have a, a pretty good way to wrestle with the sacred and the profane and live comfortably with both and i think that willie embodies that i mean i saw him uh, after his july 4th picnics I saw him singing a a song he wrote that really brought him to Nashville, Family Bible. There's a family Bible
2: on the table It's pages warm and hard to read But the family Bible on the table Will ever be my key
4: to memory. No to hear him sing Family Bible about 20 feet from you in church, you can't get any closer to whatever the, the, the higher power is. And then, you know, 15 minutes later, he's telling you the filthiest, dirty joke you've ever heard. And he's really good at it. Yeah, yeah. And he loves t- doing it. To me, that's the idea of growing up in a dry county just across from a wet county and a bunch of honky-tonks and singing in church, singing in bars. Uh, th- that's him.
1: That, that's, that's beautifully said, Joe Nick. And uh, one of the things I think that uh, I sort of grasped more uh, concretely after I read this book is this poetic spirit that comes through. I mean, Willie didn't grow up, you know, it wasn't like he was Harvard educated and read all the great books or anything like that grew up in a culture you know where picking cotton was the way you made a living and you know was a door-to-door salesman of like encyclopedias and vacuum cleaners and raised by his grandparents i mean it was a pretty hard scrabble life and yet out of this emerged this gift for poetic language and this phrasing as a singer very sophisticated sensibility as an artist how do you attribute the fact that he was able to string words together so beautifully at such an early age, despite the fact that he didn't have the traditional higher education that you maybe associate with some of those things?
4: No. Well, I mean, if you you want to get down and dirty, he came from a family, hillbillies from the Ozarks in Arkansas. And in that context, really rural and really poor, his grandparents that ended up raising him were singing school teachers. And I love this idea that they kind of supplemented his uh, money that he made with uh, being a blacksmith with going around to these uh, little communities and taking over a school or a church for a week or two and teaching the whole community how to sing using shape notes, which, you know, you don't have to be literate to understand shape Mm -hmm. notes. And there's poetry in that. And the fact that his grandmother would write church spiritual lyrics at night. I mean, this was a family that was tied to music and was tied uh, to the idea of of writing words, but they weren't educated people by any stretch of the imagination. He was just encouraged in all the right ways by his family, uh, who didn't discourage music, and by his teachers at school. And, you know, as as hard as it was growing up, and and they say, uh, you know, uh, friends of his that grew up with him, yeah, it was a Great Depression, we was all poor, but the Nelsons, they was really poor. Well, it was so poor that the first horse he rode was the Family Cow Ready. But despite all that, his sister Bobby said, uh, you know, they were the stars at Abbott Elementary, Junior High and High School because they could play music. So whenever there was a gathering, they'd call the Nelson kids in. And I asked Bobby, I said, when did you know you were a success? And she said, we always were a success. (laughs) So that's kind of, there's a confidence there. Mm Mm-hmm that I, I think no one should mistake this good-natured guy. He's got an ego, and he's, he's got confidence. They both do. And they're doing exactly what their grandparents raised him to do 70-some-odd years ago.
2: Shotgun Willie sits around in his underwear Fighting on a bullet, pulling out all of his hair Shotgun Willie's got all of his family there Well, you can't make a record if you ain't got nothing to say You can't make a record if you ain't got nothing to say
3: You can't play music if you don't know nothing to play We'll continue our conversation about Willie Nelson with Texas music authority Joe Nick Batosky after a short break here on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. And later on, Greg Cott will add a track to the Desert Island Jukebox.
2: Plan. the six foot five John T. was a hell of a man, made a lot of money selling sheets on the family plan, a shotgun Willie sits around in his underwear, fighting on a bullet pulling out all of his hair. Stranger from Blue Rock, Montana rode into town one day, and under his knees was a raging black stallion. walking behind was a babe. A red headed stranger had eyes like thunder, and his lips they were sad and tight. His little lost love. Lay asleep on the hillside And his heart was heavy as night
3: Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis here with Greg Cott and we are talking to Joe Nick Potosky, author of Willie Nelson and Epic Life. Uh, Today, Willie Nelson is someone we consider to be a major artist, but while he'd been writing and performing music since he was a child in Texas, he didn't achieve major commercial success until the mid-70s. Joe Nick, as we were discussing earlier, Willie really didn't have an easy time breaking into the music industry, ever. No. (laughs) (laughs) Never quite fit.
4: No, this is what I love. I mean, knowing what little I do about the record business and... (laughs) and, uh, Knowing what I know about Willie and trying the walls he came up against, which were not always in his autobiography or briefly referred to and then skipped over. I just love these clashes where, you know, the system was like keeping him shut out. And yet all along the way, there were little flashes of brilliance. I mean, his his recordings weren't that distinguished really until 59 when he when he was uh, cutting for D Records. And he happened to cut Nightlife uh, in Houston. And, and it's it's a jazz, it's a blues song, it ain't country.
2: Many people just like me Dreaming of old used to be And the nightlife ain't a good life But it's my life
4: But up till then his stuff's pretty primitive and and raw and then when he becomes uh, famous as a songwriter this period in nashville 12 years it's not enough to be a successful very wealthy songwriter and that's what he was because the story is all about him spending his money to basically keep a band and to stay on the road because he didn't want to just write songs for farron young and ray price and that's you know farron and ray both were trying to offer him big money just stay at home and write for me Mm. and they didn't realize he wants it's not he doesn't want to write for me he wanted to be them Mm -hmm. yeah and that's the real struggle well it's it's a great part of the
1: book where he's he goes to nashville he moves from eventually he's been he's all been all over the country and he eventually goes to the songwriting capital and uh, you know nashville's exploding the country pop sound is starting to come in into vogue and he's got these huge hits for fair and young with hello walls and crazy for patsy Mm -hmm. klein and Roy Orbison does pretty paper. Pretty
0: pencils to write, I love you. Pretty paper,
2: pretty ribbons of blue.
1: He's making a, a ton of money off the songwriting, and yet they have no clue as to what to do with him <laughs> as a recording artist. I mean, obviously we can sit back now and laugh at the Nashville establishment and say, boy, you know, uh, it's like all those record companies that pass on the Beatles, right? But what's your perspective on that, Joe Nick, in terms of, you know, Willie wasn't easily molded and easily shaped either. He wasn't going to play by their rules either, right? I mean, it goes both well, ways, he I didn't,
4: he didn't fit in the box, Joe Allison, who signed him to Liberty just after he had all the songwriting hits in 1961, he knew what Willie was. And there's these sessions, uh, obscure sessions he did in L.A. with uh, Earl Palmer on drums and Red Calendar on bass. I mean, we're talking a jazz trio mm-hmm. and his soon-to-be wife, Shirley Colley. And they're they're scatting like Lambert, Hendricks and Ross.
2: We down in Columbus, Georgia Back in Tennessee, way down in Columbus, Stocky, friends that turn back so on me. Go and leave me if you wish to. Never let me cross your mind. In your heart, you love a lover. Leap little arms like
5: mine.
4: Allison hey, dug him, he understood. This guy's like Sinatra, Georgia. But that wasn't enough, and it didn't last, and Liberty blew up. Well, Chet Atkins signed him to RCA, which was about the most prestigious label in Nashville in 64. And the story of Chet trying to break Willie through, it's amazing because Chet was the master of the Nashville sound. We look back now, it was kind of formulaic, but he tried to fit Willie into the box many times as a jazz singer, as as backed up by the Texas Troubadours, and nothing worked. So I'm not saying Chet was clueless. But they didn't understand Willie, and and the, the important thing to remember is even in by 1965, when they let him do a, a live album because it's cheap, and they do country music concert at one of the places where it's it's sacred ground to him, Panther Hall in Fort Worth. He's making a lot of money there, mm-hmm. going to Texas on weekends and. Look, he's a guy that, he's not wearing a nudie suit. He said after (laughs) playing with Ray Price that you weren't going to get me in a nudie suit again. Mm -hmm. He's dressing like Hugh Hefner's giving him dressing tips. (laughs) That's rebellious Mm -hmm. in the Nashville context at the time. And one of the few songs he covers on live country music concert in 65 is a song by this band, this this famous country band. He he jokes on the record uh, The Beatles.
2: Yesterday... (laughs) My trouble seems so far away. Now it looks as though they're here to stay. Oh, I
4: believe in yesterday. Nashville's trying, and they want to expand their reach, but they don't know what to do with this guy. And, and Chet didn't, and Willie didn't know what to do.
3: You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis here with Greg Cott, and our guest is Texas music expert and author Joe Nick Petoskey. We're talking about the life and career of music legend Willie Nelson. So, uh, Joe Nick, you're describing Willie's lack of success during his time with RCA, 14 albums worth. Following that, he moves to Austin. For a lot of people, that looked like giving up.
4: Yeah, that's, the career's over.
3: But it ended up working out, right? I mean to what extent did Willie Nelson make Austin the live music capital of America and to what extent did Austin make Willie? Well, if you wanna personalize it, he's the guy, he's the face of
4: all this, but there was already a, a nice scene cooking that he walked into. And I and understand he was playing in Austin. I remember he did a double bill with Hank Thompson in 65 at UT. So Mm. there was that backdrop, but this kind of alternative scene was already up and running and cooking. But there was no one from the country realm. All these acts were playing rock and roll and folk music that was very heavily influenced by country because it was like kind of the native music. Mm -hmm. But Willie was the only one that had the background that actually came from traditional country so he legitimized the whole scene from another direction he wanted to (laughs) he wanted to be like the kids
1: you have a great description of what austin was like in the early 70s i think it's one of the most fascinating parts of the book you hone in on one moment that concert in august of 72 at the armadillo world headquarters oh yeah willie is the gentleman farmer at this point right and uh, he's 39 years old well past his quote unquote prime and it's this great moment where it all sort of comes together. The counterculture meets the country icon, and 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 this new blend emerges. Could you could you talk a little bit about that night?
4: Well, if if any venue represented what this strange little mix that was going on, this music scene that was blowing up in Austin, it was the Armadillo World Headquarters, and it was very much based on the same model as the Fillmore and the Avalon in San Francisco, because there was there was a lot of Austin people. Out in San Francisco, so it was a hippie collective that took over a National Guard armory at 525 Barton Springs Road, right across the river from downtown Austin. And at that time, South Austin was a very different place. They called it Bubba Land. It was where a lot of people didn't go because it was your where your rednecks lived. Mm-hmm. Today, it's mm-hmm. kind of it's so cool and it's very trendy. But the Armadillo was was this place that they had already brought in, like the Burrito Brothers. Ry Cooter had already played there, Captain Beefheart. But really, Eddie Wilson, uh, who is the big head honcho there at uh, the Armadillo, he had been turned on to to Willie when he was out doing a dope run to San Francisco. And Willie had heard about the Armadillo. So it's like when Willie and Paul show up looking for a gig, there's a meeting of the minds. And for the next year and a half or so, there was this the Armadillo and the Armadillo staff kind of merged together with Willie's people and it really did elevate the whole scene mainly through these uh, attempts at doing video and television which ended up leading to Austin City Limits and certainly with the Willie Nelson 4th of July picnic that kind of set the stage for all this
3: Mm -hmm. we are talking to Joe Nick Potosky who has written this book Willie Nelson and Epic Life Joe Nick I've never been to the Willie Nelson compound or one of these picnics but (laughs) everything I've read about him your, your descriptions most vividly the Clouds of Marijuana Spoke. And this guy's country, and this guy sings about, about God and love and romance. and But he is like an unrepentant hedonist mm-hmm. <laughs> and particularly fond of this leaf. He's a cat. You know, he's a hip
4: cat. Look, his his first taste was back in the 50s in Fort Worth. Mm-hmm. So it's always been around. But uh, I think when he moved to Austin in the 70s, it, it was pretty clear that getting stories from his oldest daughter— from Connie, his wife at the time, and from Paul English, his best friend, how Willie was a lousy drunk and a really mean drunk. You didn't want to be around him. He'd smash in doors and windows, but they all say pot tamp down the rage. Mm-hmm. And Willie says as much. It works for him. And I tell you what, if someone indulges in in, in such habits, there's not a better person in the world to be sharing that with.
1: Willie, absolutely. There's so many things that he's been associated with in his life. But I think, Joe Nick, you really hit one of the key phases of his life when you talk about that period in Austin in the early 70s, you know, becoming empowered again as an artist. Uh, That 1975 record, Red-Headed Stranger, put him back on the map. A concept album about a preacher who kills his wife. I mean, even his record label had to be looking at him going, are we going to put this thing out? The label really didn't believe in it, right, Joe Nick?
4: That's yes, that's uh. But again, he, Will, Willie's always tilted against windmills, and in the case of Redheaded Stranger, he really did. He cut an album for four thousand bucks in a week. It only clocked in at thirty-five minutes, and he delivered. Uh, actually, his manager Neil Reshin, and Neil's other client uh, Waylon Jennings delivered a demo to Bruce Lundvall, the head of Columbia Records, and Bruce listened and said, "This is a nice demo." And he didn't want to put it out. Waylon got in his face, mm-hmm. which what a great intimidation tactic. Mm-hmm. Waylon <laughs> got a guy in black leather, all greasy and sweaty, leaning across your desk, telling you you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and Neil got him one of these contracts uh, with artistic control. Neil is was very important in the sense that uh, he, for Waylon Jennings, when he renegotiated Waylon's contract for RCA. Back in the uh, late 60s, it was the first time that an artist had artistic control, control of their product in anything recorded in Nashville. Mm-hmm. So he did that with Willie when he signed with Columbia. So Lundball didn't really have a chance. No one wanted to put it out, but they had to put it out. And they did. And uh, lo and behold, some uh, a bunch of disc jockeys were ready to pay Willie back for all the good years that uh, he'd treated uh, radio people well. Now they finally had a song that they thought they could push, and it was called Blue Eyes Crying in the Rain.
5: In
2: twilight glow I see Blue eyes cry in the rain When we kissed goodbye and part
1: I knew
2: we'd never
1: meet again Joe Nick, we can't talk about Willie Nelson in the 70s without talking about Outlaw Country. You talk about Outlaw Country and you think Willie and Waylon Jennings. They were at the center of this movement. Willie's 1976 album, Wanted the Outlaws, that became country's first platinum album. Explain to us what Outlaw Country really was. Was it just a marketing ploy?
4: Well, the album, Wanted the Outlaws, was... Certainly just a marketing venture, Uh, but what it really represented with this outlaw movement was Wayland in Nashville, and he really led the charge in in the late 60s, early 70s. He was a rock and roll band. He was Buddy Holly Mm -hmm. in a country context, and he was the first country act to play arenas and coliseums. I mean, he was that big. He was the first crossover, Mm -hmm. and he was hard-charging and did it his way, and he was... He wanted complete control, and he loved being in the recording studio. And to that yin, Willie was the yang of this free spirit who recorded with anyone, was recording with Jerry Wexler at the time in in New York and uh, experimenting with the music, but basically so outside the box that he wasn't even in Nashville. He was creating his own alternative Nashville in Austin. So out of that came this sense that uh, whether you're country or folk, all of a sudden, there were a lot of guys showing up in Austin with cowboy hats, long hair and boots and dragging around guitars. And And it wasn't just Austin. It was Texas. And it was all over the United States. And it was kind of this new alternative category for people that, you know, it used to be if you wanted to make it here in, in Texas, you had to go to L.A., San Francisco if you're a hippie, Nashville if you're a country, or New York. And that was it. Mm-hmm. But this whole movement was predicated on you don't have to go anywhere. Be here and start your own little provincial movement. And it was built not on an industry of recording, but on this idea of a bunch of clubs. And that remains the heart and soul of whatever Austin and Texas music is.
3: Well so so they're outlaws in the sense that they're outsiders but also you know it yeah. has to be said that, that uh, Willie has broken a few laws in his time <laughs> whether we're talking about the marijuana Always. thing or or you know racking up 17 million that he owes the IRS <laughs> I mean yeah. I, I don't I can't even imagine possessing a fraction of 17 million much less owing that in taxes
4: well it's interest uh, I mean interest was a lot of it and a lot of it was just sloppy work but uh, I'm not trying to justify anything other than he grew up so poor. He never he never made any money to pay taxes with until he started selling enough uh, uh, songs and generating enough royalties that the IRS showed up and said, hey, you owe us this. Mm-hmm. So he'd pay it. Every time that he had a bill, he paid it. Well, one of the factors that led to his termination of uh, uh, his agreement with Neil Rush and his manager is Neil didn't pay some taxes when things were started blowing up there was bills there were court battles there were discussions there were uh, accounting firms involved so there was what shall we say a convergence <laughs> of uh, problems and it all resulted in this tax bill of 17 million and he deserved it but all i can say is he could have taken the easy way out with bankruptcy he didn't it should have broken a, a lesser person it should have broken him and it didn't somehow I think it was really the lowest point in his life uh, once he made it in the business. Mm -hmm.
1: If you had to sum it up in a a few words, how do you explain how this guy's music has transcended these generations and these genres and appeals to so many millions of people after all these years? What is it about Willie Nelson that separates him from maybe just about any other country artist of the last 40 years?
4: Well, not even country. and, And I'll say this. He has this talent that every politician in the world would want. And very few have, and and it goes also for entertainers or celebrities. But he's this songster that no matter what you project on him, you're probably right. <laughs> so if you see him as the great country traditionalist, yeah, he took Merle and, and Ray Price out on the road and uh, last of the breed. If you see him as this outside-the-box Welcome all comers guy, that explains Snoop Dogg freestyling over his music and when they <laughs> played the Milk Vig last year. If you see him as the, the champion of the, the independent family farmer, he's that. He's also probably the most significant pothead in America. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, he, he, he preaches peace, and yet he comes from a hardcore uh, underworld in uh, Fort Worth. It's whatever you think he is, you're probably right. And uh, I've never seen anyone like this.
3: Musically, Joe Nick, you said earlier Sinatra, Willie's 76. He's not gonna, even he can't live forever. Five decades from now, where are they gonna fit him in in the musical canon?
4: Elvis. All right, all you people don't say he's talking out of turn, but but I really think he's gonna be as big or bigger than Elvis. He's a singer, he's got a distinctive voice, His playing is great. I mean, that's probably his greatest quality right now. He's written great songs. And he had told me back when I interviewed him in uh, 2004, he had over 2,000 tracks finished in the can that had not been released. Wow. (laughs) So think of it this way, uh, all you Elvis fans. We're going to be hearing new Willie Nelson music in the 22nd century
3: <laughs> yeah excellent <laughs> Joe Nick Patosky, Willie Nelson and Epic Life thank you so much for coming on Sound Opinions Joe Nick
4: hey thank you all for having me and uh, look forward to seeing you down the trail
2: been feeling kind of free but I'd rather feel your arms around me cause you're taking that away everything that I wanted
1: if you'd like to comment on our conversation about Willie Nelson or anything else in the rock universe, give us a call at 888-859-1800 or send us an email at interact at soundopinions.org. We're going to be back after a short break on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media with a review of the new Bob Dylan record and my Desert Island jukebox pick. It's a
2: memory today will be a memory tomorrow I hope you happy Sunday Your memory won't die in my Support for sound opinions is provided by founding sponsor Alltech
0: Lansing and their new Octave Air Speaker System, a wireless 80-watt wall of sound for
3: your iPod. More information at alltechlansing.com.
0: Oh well, I love you, pretty baby. You're the only love I've ever known. Just as long as you stay with me. The whole world is my throne
3: Beyond here lies nothing. Nothing we could call our own. Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. That is a song called Beyond Here Lies Nothing from the new Bob Dylan studio album Together Through Life. The 33rd proper studio recording of Dylan's long and storied career. We weren't expecting this one. kind of came out of the blue, you know, all of a sudden, hey, a new Bob Dylan album. Yeah. Uh, weren't we supposed to wait a couple more years? He's been on something of, of a real role through the 2000s with Love and Theft in 2001 and Modern Times in 2006. A lot of people saying he's back at his creative peak. For this one, uh, he seemed to have dashed it off fairly quickly, not with his usual band, recruited some guest stars, Mike Campbell, Tom Petty's great guitarist, and uh, David Hidalgo of Los Lobos mainly playing accordion, squeeze box here. And he had some help writing lyrics. Wait a minute. Bob Dylan getting help (laughs) writing lyrics? Really? Robert Hunter is best known as the beat poet who was Jerry Garcia's longtime songwriting partner in The Grateful Dead. A lot of these lyrics about uh, love's relished and love's lost were penned by Robert Hunter. Any Bob Dylan album is a cause for us to take a look at it as he prepares to celebrate his 68th birthday later this month. Let's play a track from this album and then come back and give our opinions here on Sound Opinions. This is a song called It's All Good from Together Through Life by Bob Dylan.
0: Talk about me, babe If you must Throw out the dust Pile on the dust I'd do the same thing If I could You know what they say they say it's all good All good It's all good Big politicians Telling lies Restaurant, kitchen All full of flies Don't make a bit of difference Don't see why it's should But it's all right Cause it's all good It's all good It's all good Wives are leaving their husbands They're beginning to roam They leave the party And they never get home I wouldn't change it Even if I could you know what they say, man? It's all good. It's all good. All good.
1: That is It's All Good from Bob Dylan's latest studio album, Together Through Life. Yes, Jim, he has been on a bit of a roll lately, seems to have discovered himself as the best Bob Dylan producer ever. Uh, this yeah. guy Jack Frost, that's uh, Bob Dylan producing pseudonym. himself. him, yeah. And he has uh, decided that he may have a wreck of a voice. It has gone downhill indisputably over the last couple of decades, but for whatever reason, he has the right touch in the studio for making it sound warmer than it should be, more listenable than it should be. I really like the intimacy that he is able to conjure up in the studio uh, with uh, him as producer. That said, this album feels like a real toss off to me. I mean, uh, Tossed Off Dylan is better than, still better than 90% of the artists out there, but it is not at the top tier of the records that he has been making since uh, Time Out of Mind in 1997. I would put this more in a a middle tier Dylan record. This is uh, a major artist between stations as opposed to being a grand statement. The lyrics feel a little bit more tossed off. Maybe that's because of the collaborations with Hunter. They're talking more about sort of romance as opposed to grand statements about where we sit in modern times. It's a pretty hallmark card, yeah. And, and And the music itself is rather generic in some ways. He's clearly ripping off some classic blues records that he loved on the chess label in the 50s I mean he's making no bones about it I mean basically
3: takes Willie Dixon's I just wanna make love to you and and retools it a little bit which is fine I mean look you know I think you overrate actually the Dylan albums of the last ten years. You know, Love and Theft and Modern Times in particular, there were some moments there, but when he was doing that pre rock and roll schmaltzy thirties, forties balladry, I hate that. That's not there's only one example of that on here. The rest of this album I really love for its very casualness. Bob Dylan goes into a room with some people he digs, Mike Campbell yeah. and most of all, David Hidalgo, and he has fun. He's jamming, he's cutting loose, he's just this is what made uh, big pink you know the album by the band where they just went in the basement and jammed right so great you know david hidalgo is a national treasure and los lobos do not get the props they deserve to have this guy this force of nature from california playing squeeze box all right and dylan getting off on that and the two of them just kind of building throughout this whole record it is all about the voice of and the squeeze box. And and I, I love it. You know, Dylan has made enough grand statements for seven lifetimes. We don't need more masterpieces from Bob Dylan. If at age 68 he wants to jam with his friends and have fun, I, I want to be there. I, I say buy it, burn it trash. is a buy it record. I have to disagree. I think it's a burn it record. I mean, you're not. Why are you being <laughs> so mean? <laughs> I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. Remember, we were shipwrecked together. That little snippet of sound only means one thing. As often as we can here on Sound Opinions, Greg or I like to take a trip to the desert island, pop a quarter in the jukebox, and tell you about a song we can't live without today. What do you got, Greg?
1: Thank you, Jim. Recently, uh, we had a show where we discussed the best live albums, and uh, I was talking about that uh, MTV Unplugged performance by uh, Nirvana and Kurt Cobain. And I highlighted one song in particular, uh, his performance of Lead Bellies Through the Pines. The other great performance on that record is, is a song by the Vaselines called Jesus Don't Want Me for a Sunbeam. Yes! You, in your Catholic school upbringing, I'm sure were subjected at one point or another to the children's hymn, Jesus Wants Me for a Sunbeam. Yeah. Uh, if you were a kid growing up in Catholic school, sooner or later you're going to sing that song. Eugene Kelly and his then girlfriend Frances McKee were both products of the Scottish Catholic school system and uh, they were subjected to that song as well. As anyone knows who has a teenage son or daughter a certain streak of rebelliousness will creep in eventually at any sort of authority, at any sort of imposition that somebody knows better than you who God is. Yeah. And uh, this song essentially addresses that. I think what drew Cobain to it was not only the skepticism, I mean it's basically an agnostics prayer but at the same time the beauty of the melody so the the chafing the tension mm-hmm. between the idea that you know maybe there isn't a god and why am i praying to this person who i don't know with this beautiful melody something so beautiful something so godlike i think that tension really appealed to cobain and, and it drew attention to the this great band eugene kelly and francis mckee met in the mid-80s formed this little band wrote 19 songs together put out uh, one album, two singles, a few thousand copies of each, eventually found the ears of Kurt Cobain in the Pacific Northwest. They had long broken up. They'd only been together for three years. I might add, though, they're touring again in a reunited uh, form this summer. Well, here's part two of this, is that uh, we do indeed have these 19 songs again, have resurfaced in a beautiful package on on Sub Pop Records, uh, Cobain's original label. And the band has reunited, uh, McKee and Kelly are once again touring, and we get to hear these songs again in, in a new light. And what we will find is that Jesus Wants Me for a Sunbeam is a great song. It is one of Kurt Cobain's favorites, and it's my Desert Island jukebox pick today from the Vaseline's On Sound Opinions.
5: Jesus don't want me for a sunbeam
3: that's the Vaselines Jesus Wants Me for a Sunbeam also known as Jesus Don't Want Me or Jesus Doesn't Want Me for a Sunbeam a great pick Mr. Cott what do we have on the show next week next week Jim a terrific band speaking of Scotland Franz Ferdinand will be here uh, for an interview and a live performance as always Sound Opinions was produced by our ace team of Todd Bachman Jason Saldana and Robin Lynn, and our executive producer and fearless leader is Tori Southside Malatia a man we like to call Zen Bubba
5: Operator, can you help me? Help me if you please. Give me the right area code and the number that I need.
1: On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. Now it's time to hear what you have to say.
2: New messages.
1: Hi, it's Mark from Milwaukee. I just got done listening to your uh, greatest live album show. Having come of age in the 70s when live albums were prevalent, I've had lots in my collection for better and certainly for worse. Uh, my
4: unsung offering from the heyday of live albums has got to be the Beach Boys in Concert from
0: 1973. No ifs words
5: say, but this is the Beach
3: Boys. Their best touring bands, I think, including Blondie Chaplin and Ricky Fatar, vocal performances by Carl Wilson and Al Jardine. A darling, night, day, yeah.
5: you, baby, life,
1: Just a great album, and I've enjoyed it for years. Thanks. Bye. Yeah, this is Mike from Mineola, Long Island, New York. You're talking of live albums, and you overlook the Allman
4: Brothers Band live at Fillmore East. And while people go for Statesboro Blues, I think their version of Done Somebody Wrong really shows the band at the
0: peak
3: of their powers. Uh, keep up the good work, guys. Love your show. Bye-bye.
0: Uh, my mama show me these days would come I wouldn't
4: listen to her Had to help my. Father.
0: Hi, this is Jennifer from Wheaton, and I just was listening to your live album show, and this isn't a live album, it's just a live cut of a song. That every time I hear it it just tears me up inside and it's uh, Jack White with the white stripes singing Jolene by Dolly Park. Jolene, Jolene,
5: Jolene, Jolene.
2: Please don't take my
5: you
0: can. The way he sings it just makes you think that's the way the song was meant to be sung. Thank you.
4: Bye-bye. Hey, guys. Mike in Louisville. Favorite live album of all time, Stand in the Fire by Warren Zevon, 1980. Uh, the Roxy in L.A. It's just a great live uh, show that uh, was recorded at a time when I thought Zevon was uh, pretty much wasted on alcohol and drugs, but it turns out he was in a period of sobriety when he uh, recorded that show, and uh, it's just unbelievable. Three three songs really stand out, um, which are some of his best-known songs, but um, Werewolves of London, Muhammad's Radio... And Poor, Poor, Pitiful Me, he just vamps on all three of those songs and throws in all kinds of interesting tidbits. He name drops uh, Jimmy Carter and the Ayatollah and Ryan De Palma. And at the end of Poor,
2: Poor, Pitiful Me, he's yelling at the crowd, get up and dance, get up and dance or I'll kill you.
4: you got to appreciate that type
0: of uh, (laughs) message to your audience. Love the show, and uh, you guys keep up the good work. See ya.
2: No more messages.
3: To give us your opinion on sound opinions, call our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with sound opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.